Welcome to the You on the Camino de Santiago podcast, Season 3. This podcast is for and about people getting ready for their first ever pilgrimage on the Camino de Santiago in Spain, France, and Portugal. With your host, Camino guide and longtime pilgrim, Nancy Reynolds of the Camino Experience. Where you are? That's my question to pilgrims on the Camino Frances. Do you have any idea where you are and how rich this Camino route is in history and culture? Hi, this is Nancy, and in this episode, I got to hang out with Bibi Barami, author of the Moon Camino de Santiago guidebook for the Frances route. And I mean really hang out. Bibi and I have spent the past nine days as writers-in-residence at the Stone Boat Guesthouse in Robinal del Camino on the Frances route, approximately 225 kilometers from Santiago. I'll tell you more about Bibi in a moment, but first I want to share a bit about staying at the Stone Boat. The boat is a beautiful three-room guesthouse with a spacious common room that is perfect for working on your writing projects, warmed by the wood-burning stove. The Stone Boat is a beautiful three-room guest house with a spacious common room that is perfect for working on your writing projects, warmed by the wood-burning stove. The owner, Kim, offers up the Stone Boat for winter retreat space from late October through March for a week or more at a time. In addition to the sleeping rooms and common space, winter retreatants also have access to the fully equipped kitchen, so you can stay extra warm with a big pot of soup and plenty of hot drinks. Groceries aren't included, but your Wi-Fi and firewood are. What I love the most about my retreat time at the Stone Boat is that it is completely self-guided. My time is my time and I work on whatever I want, whenever I want. In other words, this isn't a group retreat where there is a leader setting an agenda. This is all you and your creative projects. To find out more about a winter retreat at The Stone Boat, I'd like to invite you to visit the website of thestoneboat.com and find the tab called Writing Retreats. And then to contact Kim, Go to the contact tab and scroll down to the bottom of that page. There you'll find a form that you can fill out. You'll also find her email address. Another thing unrelated to writing retreats is a message to anyone who has signed up for my email list, meaning you requested my top 10 Camino tips that don't usually show up on the top 10 lists or my Camino planning roadmap. If that's you, you've signed up, but you haven't been receiving emails from me. Probably it means you just missed the step of opening the email with your free tips or roadmap and clicking on the button to download them. That's how you get confirmed onto the list. If you would like to be on my email list, or if you think you should be on my list, but you haven't been hearing from me every Friday with Camino tips and information, 
then you will need to request that again. The easiest way is to go to thecaminoexperience.com and wait for the pop-up box with the sign-up form to come up, or scroll down to the bottom of the homepage and find the sign-up form there. Then, once you've entered your name and email address, check your inbox for an email from Nancy at the Camino Experience. Open it up and click on the button to get your top 10 tips. If you don't see my email in your inbox, check your spam or junk folder. It's probably hiding there. And while you're at it, you may want to mark me as a safe sender or add my email address to your contacts. I have lots of good stuff to send your way, and I would hate for you to miss out. There is also a link for the sign-up form in the show notes for this episode, so you can get on my email list and also get your top 10 tips. And you can always simply email me at youonthecamino at gmail.com. Okay, are you ready to meet my guest? Bibi Barami is an award-winning freelance travel writer and anthropologist who is passionate about European, Atlantic, and Mediterranean cultures and about pilgrimage and the Camino de Santiago. Bibi is widely published in the areas of travel, food and wine, outdoors and adventure, archaeology, spiritual travel, pilgrimage, and other cross-cultural topics, and she has lived and traveled extensively in the diverse cultures of Europe, North Africa, Southwest Asia, and across North America. Bibi's background in anthropology allows us to see the Camino through a unique lens, one that drops us right in the middle of the history and culture of this ancient pilgrimage path. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. The last thing to mention, I had some problems with the sound this time around. That's because Bibi and I recorded the conversation in the common room of the stone boat with the sound bouncing off the stone walls. And we were sharing a microphone. Not an ideal acoustic situation. But I hope the content of the conversation will divert your attention from the, at times, low sound quality. Thanks for bearing with me on this one. Let's meet Bibi. So let's say hello to Bibi. Hi, Bibi. Thanks for being with me. Hi, Nancy. Oh, it's great to be here. (laughs) I feel really fortunate because we ended up in a spot on the Camino without any pre-planning. We just ended up at the Stone Boat guest house in Robinal. How did that even happen? It was pretty cool because I was thinking it would be really nice to have a place to pause and catch up on my notes and do a little bit of writing. So I sent Kim, the the owner of the Stone Boat, a message and I said, is there any chance that I can take one of the retreat spots at the Stone Boat? And she said, it just happens. (laughs) that Nancy is here and she's manning the ship uh, and uh, that I was welcome to come and, and stay for, for, for the time that I needed to be here. We didn't know the other was going to be even on the Camino. No, I had no idea that you'd be on the Camino. And we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about the stone boat and the winter retreats that are available. I mentioned that in the last episode, but we'll talk about that a bit more and how that actually has worked for us, how we've been doing it. And then I'm going to ask you in a little bit to talk about 
the name the stone boat where does that fit into the camino legend because that's that's a pretty interesting one and you have a personal tie to where that came to be so we're going to talk about all of that plus a bunch of other stuff but i want to start where i always start which is having you put the pin in the map where did you start walking this time and what are you doing here okay this time which is 2023 <laughs> i began in Nahera, and I was picking up from last year. I had actually intended to walk further than Nahera last year. I had started at the Pyrenees, but I actually had work that then accelerated my need to, to leave where I was on the Camino and go. And I was actually teaching a writing retreat on the Camino, but in the mountains of Leon, or at the threshold of Leon, these mountains. And so that was really important, and I draw, I, but I knew I needed to come back for many reasons. I'm doing research for a couple new travel narrative books. I'm warming up to get ready to do the update for the third edition of my guidebook, but you know that one will probably really fall in tense timing next year. But I just wanted to get a head start because the Camino has had a lot of changes post-pandemic world, and I just wanted to you know, get caught up with locals and see how everyone's doing and see what changes are that's the fun part for me too is to come back and visit the places i know so well and see the people and i i bet you have the same experience that i do when you walk into a place and they remember you and it's like this joyous reunion on the camino it is really wonderful it is really wonderful is they are old friends and they're they're they really serve the Camino and they're just so kind and generous with us. So it does feel good when you're recognized and yes. you get that warm welcome. Okay, so you started in Nahera and you walked as far as Rabanal del Camino. Was that a through, That's through walk for you? Much, yeah, and then I will, after my retreat is finished here, I'm going to continue. I'm going to continue. I'm going all the way to Santiago de Compostela and maybe this time also to Finisterre and Mushia. Though I'm going to wait and just see how that unfolds. There's okay. a lot to do in Santiago. Oh, no kidding. No kidding. This is always something interesting that comes up for me is this is not obviously not your first time walking the Camino Frances. Do you get asked the question, how many times have you done it when you're on the Camino? Always. Every time people find out I've been here more than once, that's the next question. How many times have you walked it? And I don't count. I don't think I ever did count. And when I did try to go back and count, it was impossible. So I'm curious, Vivi, why don't you count how many times you've been out here? I don't count. For one thing, it's not something that's been a priority for me. And for another, okay, so I started walking the Camino in 1995. And I'm an anthropologist. So I also was doing a lot of field work. And I still do a lot of field work on the Camino and in the regions of the Camino. And that really began in 1986. Um, okay, okay. So we've got a long-term love affair with Spain going on, right? We sure do. We sure do. <laughs> okay, so it's not just the Camino for you because you've written other books in addition to the Moon Camino de Santiago guidebook. You've written other books about travel in Spain, spirituality in Spain, yes. history, anthropology, all of that. You've got quite a library to your name. I am very <laughs> blessed that I've been able to do all that, and it is a passion. And yeah. I have been walking pilgrimages all across mm. Spain and Iberia and in France, not just routes of the Camino, not just the Camino Frances that is my, what my book is covering 
and the Mushi and Finisterre routes as well, but many, many pilgrimage routes all across Iberia and, and France, as well as England and Germany, but that's way too much information <laughs> for people. But it, there's so many pilgrimages here, and the Spiritual Traveler Spain, I spent four and a half months backpacking all across Spain, north, south, east, west, and going along amazing pilgrimage routes that have nothing to do with the Camino or are tributaries or detours of the Camino de Santiago, but they are in their own right a regional and local beloved pilgrimage route. Um, so it's really hard to count. And it's also the question, and we've talked about this yeah. before, well, what counts as a Camino then? Because many people think the only legitimate Camino might be from San Jean, Piedopora on the French side of the Pyrenees, all the way to Santiago de Compostela. But what about starting in Pamplona or Logroño or Burgos? Or what if you're from Galicia and you open your front door and you walk just 50 kilometers to get to Santiago? See, I think that's an important point, and it's one that we, uh, I think we've maybe lost track of, or some people have, because the guidebooks have a starting point. And the guidebook, well, because they have to, they have to have a context, they have to begin and end, the guidebooks about the Camino Frances start in Saint-Jean-Pilupor and end in Santiago de Compostela. And when we start to do our research, we realize, first of all, that there are other routes. And so I know some of my listeners are walking the Portuguese, walking the Norte, walking the Ingles, walking the Primitivo. My guest in the last episode was running the Primitivo. What we also realize is that the church in Santiago has that requirement to get the Compostela which is a minimum 100 kilometers on any route. So then we start to think, okay, I've got this guidebook that says it's St. Jean to Santiago, but I don't have to walk all of that if what I want is the Compostela. So yeah. why would people walk more than just the 115 kilometers from Saria? It's entirely a personal choice. Okay. I mean, if you happen to be European and want to do it the old way, you can open your front door and start walking or get a ride to the nearest you know, gateway to a main trail of the Camino, that also happened. People would take boats to get to, you know, A Coruña or to, you know, Genoa or Marseille or wherever, Barcelona. Uh, so it's really, it's it's a personal choice. There's no right or wrong way to do it. And in fact, in my, my guidebook, it starts in Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port and it goes all the way to the coast to Finisterre and Mouchia. But every chapter will tell you there are gateway cities. That this is a starting point, too, mm-hmm. and this is a starting point, too, and how to get to it, how to get to Logroño or Pamplona or Saria or León. Yeah, so let's take the question even, even farther, even, deep, even deeper. What will people find on this route? What would bring them to the Camino Frances? You've got a lens that none of the other guidebook authors have. Now, that's not to downplay the other guidebooks because they're full of incredibly practical and useful information. The John Brierley book has a wonderful spiritual undercurrent to it. Your book is so different, though. What is it that you think would bring people to this route mm-hmm. from our anthropologist's viewpoint? For one thing, I want to say I love all the guidebooks. They're all complementary to each other, and I think people should look at all of them. I agree. Because they all have... They're different ways of looking at the Camino and their different strengths. And But what my brings to it is very much the, the passion of an anthropologist who also loves archaeology and history and folklore and food and wine. Mm-hmm. And so it has those many layers. And 
every trail of the Camino, you can find these things on it, but none as rich and as highly contextualized as the Camino Frances, because it is the most historic route of the Camino across Spain. So here's the interesting thing I, I just want to say about you, Bibi, and it, it may sound like I'm trying to sell your guidebook, and I kind of am to a certain extent, but way more than that, what I want people to get a sense of is where they are when they're on the Camino Frances. And it's one of the questions that I ask my new pilgrims, do you know where you are? And what you've done in your book is you have captured so much of that history, that culture, that context, and it presents like a guidebook for any travel, but it's got the Camino. And, and I love it. I refer to it all the time after walking the Camino. But here's what's fun, and I want to share this with my listeners because, you know, Bibi, Bibi and I have been spending, you and I have been spending some time together at the Stone Boat in Rabanal, but we also, I have a rental car, so we got to do a, an excursion along the Camino. And what was so fun is it was like traveling with a live guidebook. So we, we, I loved when we were driving and you're like, oh, we're close to this church in this town. Can we just divert over there? And this is why. And then you would lay out all this history and context. And that's what this is the style of the this and the floating Mary. And I'm like, my mind is blown. And the other thing I loved is that sometimes you referenced your own guidebook to confirm that information, which is exactly what I do with my audio guide. <laughs> Somebody asked me a question, I go, let me check. Yeah. Well, I know both of us, we're, we're really sticklers for fact checking. And yes. so we know that we've done the sourcing, the primary and secondary sourcing, legitimate sources to make sure this is true yes. and correct, including talking to the actual people. Yeah. And so, yes, yeah, so it's, it's really nice to know I can you know, cross-check with my own guidebook. <laughs> but, but it, and it was really like, it was two guides in that car because, you know, I was like, let's go to this church and here's the history. And then you were like, that's my favorite cafe. And I love that Alberga. And this is my favorite stretch. And yeah. we were, it was really fun. Very yeah. symbiotic. That was fun. And I'm delighted we get to do that again tomorrow. Okay, good. So, well, I want to talk about the stone boat. And I'm at this point, not the guest house. But the stone boat, where does that name come from? Well, the first answer is we really need to ask Kim to tell the answer why she named this place the stone boat. But it does refer to the vehicle that in legend, and it's only in legend, that St. James the Greater was transported from the Holy Land after he was martyred, his head was cut off by Herod Agrippa, and his two dearest and closest disciples carried his body to the shore at Jaffa and miraculously a stone boat made of granite from Galicia no less appeared at the Holy Land in the Levant and they put his body in it and two angels were there and without oars or uh, without uh, rudders or sails that stone boat sailed all the way across the Mediterranean made a right turn at Portugal and went up the coast and anchored in Padron, in Galicia, just, what is it, 21 kilometers south, 28 kilometers south of Santiago de Compostela. Okay. And uh, so this is one of, you know, this is one of the most important pieces of the legend of St. James in Iberia, of course, after his martyrdom. There's a whole lot of legend before, and why, why, why would he go to Iberia in death? 
Okay. But so it's a miraculous thing, this stone boat. And it feels, you know, here at the stone boat in Rabanal del Camino, it feels very much like that same kind of comforting, miraculous container to take you to the center of your own spirit. You know, I've been really having a great time riding here and going for walks on the Camino, but yeah. then coming back here and sleeping. Isn't that something to actually stay in one place on the Camino for multiple nights? Because the tradition of pilgrimage on the Camino for pilgrims staying in the albergues and the pilgrim hostels is you stay one night and you move on unless you're sick or injured. So to stay in a Camino village for, we've, we've both been here for over a week now, to actually be writing about, for me, writing about the Camino Frances, for you writing travel narratives and taking notes on updating your guidebook, to hear the click, click, click of the trekking poles as they go by and see the pilgrims with their ponchos and rain jackets on yeah. in the rain, some of them completely soaking wet. It's just amazing to have that and to have the history and the tradition of serving the pilgrims yes. right in our community here. There's another really cool tradition going on here, and that is that there is a Benedictine monastic community that is is carrying the tradition of Gregorian sung prayer or Gregorian chant. And the cycle of prayer is sung five times a day in the church just up the street, the Church of Santa Maria. And it's been something to go to sung prayer, you know, morning, afternoon, and evening, and to then go for a walk and then go right. And I feel like I'm really folded into a true medieval tradition. Do those services, all five a day, go on year-round? Do you they know? Do. They do. Okay, so for anybody who is tempted or who is hearing this and thinking, that sounds good, and we haven't even talked up the guest house itself yet, but the idea of being in the village for a period of time and being able to establish that kind of rhythm without leaving the village, because pilgrimage is very rhythmic, right? It's, it's very repetitive, routine, and rhythmic, but imagine having that without leaving the village. That's a pilgrimage in and of itself. And I love um, Kim, the owner of the guest house. She may have told you this as well. She had someone come last winter and in three days finish a book project that had been given her trouble. And she came, she sat still, she had access to the kitchen, her very comfortable room, walks around the village, boom, the project was yeah. done. I know I've taken a lot of ground on my projects this week. Would you say the same? Very much. Yeah. Very cool. much. Very yes. good. So I'm going to have the information for the stone boat in the show notes. So anybody who is tempted to learn more about coming for their writing retreat in the winter can, can find out more. Uh, I think Kim does a week up to a month, but it's going to book up fast. And the thing is, you don't share the space with other people. You have it all to yourself. It was totally by chance that you and I are here together because I was going to have the stone boat to myself. And then you came along and I'm like, yes. <laughs> but the important thing is it's completely self-guided with support for the facility. But people can just come and work on their projects, any creative project. Yes. And you, I wanted to touch in, you were saying about my guidebook and yeah. what its special focus is. And that's one of the big inspirations of writing my guidebook was I wanted people to know that there are all these layers, historical, prehistorical, cultural. 
I don't want them to miss. They can make a choice, but at least know about it. And one of them is to say there are villages where there is still sung Gregorian chant. Amazing. This is one of them. There are villages that are built on top of, you know, Iron Age remains. And those are built, you know, Romans built on top of those. And and, and I don't want people to miss that. Mm. Or I don't want people to miss the octagonal church of Eunate, even though it's a 2.5-kilometer detour right after Pamplona. I don't want them to miss that they're right before going to Burgos. They're going to be going through a area that is has the oldest human remains in all of Europe. Now date back to 1.4 million years ago. Wow. The oldest human remains were found there, all on the Camino. And I just there's so much more too that I yeah. can talk about. But I just I felt as a first time pilgrim on the Camino Frances because it's just it is a lot of effort it's hard you know and you're you're putting all this energy into just walking and carrying on your back and finding a place to sleep and finding food and washing out your clothes by hand that it's really easy to miss things and they could just be a hundred meters away and for many people this is the only time they're going to come here and i didn't want them to miss these things (laughs) i love seeing your passion and love for this area and I, I've been very fortunate to get to hear more about what you love about this area. The whole Camino Frances, plus where you and I are right now in Rabanal. When we went on our little excursion the other day, we drove past the Cross of Iron, the Cruz de Ferro, which is only eight kilometers from Rabanal. And, you know, I had these ideas about the cross and what it is. And you take a rock from home and you set down your burden and thought, oh, how, how old can that tradition be? I'm like, what, someone made that up 30 years ago? And so I remember I said something to you in the car, and then I got the whole history, and I'm like, well, I'll be darned. Let's do it. So would you share with us what you know about the history of the Cross of Iron and how it fits into the history of this region? I'd love to. Um, yeah, it's there's some legend, but there's some firm you know, history. And one is that it's pretty clear that this area where the the iron cross is that mound of stones people have been leaving stones and offerings there for possibly 2500 years maybe more but for sure by the time the romans arrived in the area they were leaving stones and offerings and they were dedicating that high that is the highest point on the camino um, on the camino frances it's like what 1505 meters high and it's higher than the Pyrenees. It's higher than when you get to Osebrero. Uh, and they were they were making offerings to the god Mercury. And archaeologists are pretty sure that they were overtaking uh, earlier Iron Age, maybe Celtic-speaking peoples, god that that was also the god of high places and communication and travel. And they were leaving stones and offerings. And at some point, and we don't know when or why, uh, we have some theories why they planted a big oak trunk that's something like 16, I don't want to get the length wrong, but you'll, it's towering. It's yeah. a really big oak trunk. So wait a minute. So it is actually oak because to the... Oak un, is very important. The yeah. uninitiated eye, it looks like a big telephone pole with a cross on the top. Right. And let's hope it's still oak, but the original <laughs> trunk <laughs> was a massive oak trunk. And oak is a sacred tree. And... Mm. Some people think it maybe has something to do with the axis mundi and creating the, the center of the earth and, and of the world and connecting heaven 
to to earth but oak has been a sacred tree for many peoples many european peoples but also many peoples in other parts of the old world and at some point the hermit goselmo i think in the 11th century in the 10 somethings planted an iron cross on the top of the mound of stones and probably there was a oak trunk there already in the 10th century in the 11th century. 11th century yeah and guaselmo Am I correct that that's what this albergue is named after? It's named then? after the hermit Goselmo, who actually lived on the outskirts. I think he set up his hermitage on the outskirts of Fonsebadon. So when you leave Fonsebadon, which is six kilometers up the hill from here, another like 500 meters to your left of the Camino is a ruin. And that's probably where the hermit Goselmo lived. And he was, you know, then like 1.4 kilometers away from the Mound of Stones on Monte Irago. And he Christianized basically a pagan site, oh. but it kept the tradition because people even, you know, it's not just pilgrims or Romans um, who, who would leave offerings and stones. It's also we're in an area that traditionally has been uh, muleteers, people who have been transporting goods from the coastal areas of Galicia over the mountains and into the plains of Castile. And these mountains are daunting. And before you had railways or buses or cars, you had muleteers, who, people with really capable mules who would carry all the cargo on their trains of mules. And even the doors here in Rabanal, they're huge arched doorways. Those are made to be able to bring in your cart and your mule at night and, and stable them inside. So it's, and they would leave offerings. You know, this was a crossing a area for almost. them. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So the cross as we know it, how how old do you think that is? Would you guess? How the the Ferro crossing. What's there right now? That in the form that it's in, sometime in the Middle Ages. Okay. It's yeah. We'll have to go and look at the the first uh, guidebook on the on the Camino, the Codex Calixtinus, that was okay. written around you know eleven thirty something. And see um, if the purported author Aymeri Picot actually mentions it, but it's it's been a crossing. I mean that is that is a known part of the historic medieval Camino. Okay, wow. So for many pilgrims, it's a special spot. It's a place where they now set down their burdens, metaphorically carry the rock, heavy burden, and set it down. Does that match what? they might have been setting down over the last 10 centuries? We, we can't really know. Um, I think, though, this greater momentum in that direction of putting your burdens in the stone um, and, and laying it at the, at the foot of the cross, that feels more modern. I think it was more of making an offering and petition for protection and, and, and guidance. I've also seen many different expressions at the cross over the years. One of my favorites was a pilgrim I'd been walking with who was carrying a memento for his best friend. His best friend had started to walk in honor of his partner who had died before he could walk the Camino. And he couldn't bear to finish the journey without his partner, so he handed off the memento to the pilgrim I was walking with. And we were at the cross together. And for me, it was a time to just bear witness to the humanity and the connections and the the love and the community that we all crave and need. 
and it was this three degrees, you know, so I was connected to this pilgrim who was connected to this pilgrim to this partner. And there's something that ties us all together in that. There is. It, it's a very powerful place. I mean, yeah. I know some people wonder how, I mean, it feels like, you know, it's this ritual process. Will it really have a deep visceral meaning for me? And I think a lot of people are surprised when they get there. And I certainly was. I didn't know what to expect. I mean, I'm an anthropologist, and I understand ritual can be very powerful, sure. but I also understand you you sometimes have to be in the right frame of mind or have gone through a cycle of preparation. But So I was really surprised when I got there, and I it just wasn't sure. I wasn't feeling like anything was going to happen, but then I started climbing up the mound of rocks, and it started hitting me the thousands and thousands and thousands of people and the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of passage here. And by the time I, I had three stones and a little cross that a friend had asked me, a little wooden cross had asked me to put there, I just found myself, I, I, I wasn't thinking I'm laying down any burdens or asking for anything, but I just suddenly was hit by a massive energy wave of gratitude. Just such incredible gratitude that I could even be there gratitude for the people in my life and all the kindness I had received and all the love and um, and I just started crying and I was the only person there that I knew of and when I was finished I saw there was a young man from Argentina I could have been his mother you know and and he had gone through the same catharsis he was having his own private moment on the mound mm-hmm. <laughs> and then he walked up to me and took my hand and we walked each other down and I just thought I couldn't have had a more profound and beautiful experience, and there's no way I could have known that was happening. You could not have orchestrated that. Thanks for sharing that. It's a beautiful story. You mentioned uh, the cross. You were leaving a cross at the cross, and I think it's noteworthy that some people do take rocks, but some people take mementos of different kinds, like mm-hmm. a, a scarf or a flag or a photograph of someone, or even a written message. Yes. Yes. Now, do you know what happens to those over time? I really don't, but the other day when we went past there, we saw some two men with their orange and yellow vests, and they were, they were doing a little bit of cleaning up, but mm-hmm. it didn't look like they were removing the mementos. It looked more like they were just you know, making sure the, the, the mound was, you know, contained, yeah, <laughs> not tumbling everywhere. Yeah, and so. I've heard different things over the years. I've heard that it is cleaned up regularly okay. and that things are removed from the mound and from the yeah. oak pole that sometimes people attach things to. And so for me, when I learned that, it, I wasn't upset about it because I hadn't left anything there prior to that. But it made me think it's, it's a place to let go of. Whatever you leave at the cross, it's something to let go of because it's going to go wherever it goes. I like that too. Yeah. I, like, I like the idea that it, you've released it mm-hmm. and there's an impermanence now. It's like you don't, it's been cleared through. Yeah. Now, some people listening might have a picture in their mind of what the Iron Cross looks like. And I'm just going to mention for those who are not coming to the Camino soon, there have been some changes at the cross. One of the things is there's now a, it's actually, I think, a very beautiful low stone wall around the base of the mound to sort of contain it from moving into the road. And there have been some, uh, there has been some opposition to this. 
but my opinion is it looks very nice. There's also some pathways that have been created to connect the small chapel to the mound. So there's a direct walkway between those two and a couple other new walkways. And again, there's been some opposition to that. There were some political things going on in the region about getting that done or not getting that done. And so I think for anyone who has an idea that the Camino should never change, might not like it so much. But Pilgrim's Coming for the first time, this will be what you know of the cross. And I think, you know, it, it also brings up the important point of there are many people, especially Spaniards, who they want to come to the Iron Cross. They, they might come by car or they might come by bus. Mm -hmm. Might be the only way they can ever get there. Yeah. But it is incredibly profound and meaningful for them to put a rock or put a memento there. And they're, they're putting it for all kinds of the same reasons. And it, it, it can be as powerful for them even if they didn't walk up to it. And I think we need to remember that, that there are many ways to get there and to do this. And it can be incredibly powerful no matter what way a person does it. It's, it's, but it's our choice. It's our individual choice. And how nice if we do have the choice to actually walk. And the ability to actually walk. I so appreciate that reminder. It's sort of the same for me with Santiago. People think that only a, that a true pilgrim will walk to Santiago. And some people even say, you got to walk from Saint-Jean-Pied-du-Port to be a, a real pilgrim. And it's just so interesting because that does not play out in over history. It doesn't. Yeah. It so doesn't. It reminds me of the story you told of what I think was maybe your first pilgrimage from Padron, you there was some story of a train, and you and your husband jumping off a train. Would you would you share that pilgrimage story with us? I, I just love, love that. To. I would love to. When I'm asked when did you first walk the Camino, it's like well, 1995. However, it's not what you might think. <laughs> it was not starting in the Pyrenees and, and making the full 500 mile trek. It was actually finishing up dissertation research in Western Spain, and I was meeting my husband Birch in Lisbon, and he was doing location scouting for a film company. And we were going to meet in Lisbon, and he, he knew ever since 1986 when I first heard about the Camino de Santiago as a college exchange student in Spain, I wanted to walk it. And this is nine years later, and he said, well, I know you're finishing up your dissertation and we're doing this location scouting thing, but why don't we take the train north and at least go to Santiago de Compostela and see the holy city, and then if he really calls to you, We'll figure out a way for you to walk the, the, the full Camino Frances, you know, from the Pyrenees all the way. <laughs> and so we're on the train going north, and the last stop before Santiago was Padron. And we heard the train conductor say, last stop before Santiago, Padron, you know, ultima parada. And uh, we looked at each other, both knowing the legend of St. James, and that's where the stone boat, boat took him. And we didn't even talk to each other. The train was already picking up steam after having stopped in Padron Station. We threw the door open, threw our backpacks out, and jumped. <laughs> and can I curse on this? Because then the train conductor, you know, said, Conos. <laughs> and, and, but then seemed sort of chuffed that we had done what we had done, you know. And we, we walked into Padron that night and then uh, had a wonderful woman who immediately gave us a place to stay and understood that we might be pilgrims and introduced us to the whole legend of St. James and showed us the pillar under the church where his boat is in legend fabled to have moored. And it's, a, it's actually a jasper pillar that used to be a part of the temple of Neptune. that was a Roman temple. 
And the next day we just started walking, but we didn't walk to Santiago de Compostela straight. We walked around that finger of land that's an, it's a, like a little peninsula that sticks out in the Atlantic Ocean. And it's full of legend. I mean, it's got Padron, it has a, a dolmen from the Neolithic, it's about 4,000 years old. It has a Castro site that's 2,500 years old, an old Celtic Iron Age Castro. And it has a place called Noya that's named after Noah because Galicians also believe that Noah's Ark anchored there and that's where they found land after the Great Flood. So we walked that whole thing all around and then got to Santiago de Compostela. And in the process, because we weren't prepared, we didn't have water, we didn't have food, but a woman stopped to help us and I asked her where we could get food and water and she just opened the trunk of her car and gave us some food and water. She'd just come from the grocery store. And I really wanted, I wanted to pay her and she insisted no and she said, you are pilgrims. And I hadn't even occurred to me to call myself a pilgrim. I just thought, I'm kind of stupid. I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> I just started walking without anything, any knowledge. And, but when she said, you know, you're pilgrims and that being called that and being given such generosity and kindness. And then she told us who to go, whose door to knock on to find a place to sleep, place to eat. And that's when I was hooked. I just thought, I have to come back. And I, I feel like that was a real Camino because it might have been short. It might have been unplanned. It might have been on a trail that wasn't even marked. And it's definitely a tributary of the Camino. Mm. But that somebody else called me a pilgrim was really powerful. Mm. And I just, I love this whole, this whole legacy and history and ritual process and the lands of the Camino, the peoples of the Camino. And I'll, I've been studying them for now 30 some years and I, I'm not done. There's so much more to excavate. Wow. I love that story. There's so many, just there's some elements in there to pick out and go, that's a Camino story. That's a Camino story. That's a Camino story. You know, when you are identified by the local people as a pilgrim, there's that that's actually quite significant because the people of Spain, they've all grown up with this tradition of pilgrimage to the tomb of Santiago. So when they identify you as a pilgrim, they got eyes on you. They know what you're doing. They know what you're up to. And they know the significance in their religion anyway of a journey to the tomb of Santiago. So that's actually pretty significant. It is. Yeah. And they're incredibly gracious hosts. We are guests walking across their lands. And I am just blown away every time by the hospitality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think what I've observed is it is in part because they know what you're doing. They know where you're headed and why. And I was told early on in one of my first Camino walks that when we receive the blessing or we receive hospitality from someone on our way, we are in fact taking them with us and our walk is a prayer for them as well. And our visit to the tomb, we take with us everybody who has blessed us, served us, hosted us, they're going with us. And so they get that blessing as well. And I think they all know that. <laughs> I, I love that. And actually, when you and I met, what was it, eight years ago? Oh, gosh, 2015, was it? It was 2015. Okay. You you shared that with me. And, and I had kind of been aware of it, but I hadn't been aware of it in such a beautiful, concrete way. And 
it really, it's something now I want people to, I tell people is like, you know, when somebody says Buen Camino to you, it means I'm giving you my hopes and prayers too, and you're carrying them with you to Santiago de Compostela. So when you hug the apostle, you were hugging the statue of St. James in the cathedral for hundreds potentially of people. And that it's talk about a powerful ritual. That one floors me too. It's yeah. like putting the stone at the cross, it, the iron cross, the Cruz de Ferro, because you, you can feel all those people yes. pouring forth in the memory of all of that grace. Yeah. yeah. And even if, even if you don't believe, let's just say you don't believe the legend or believe whatever facts exist about who is in the tomb in the Cathedral of Santiago, even if you're not Catholic, even if you're not thinking this is going to grant me a plenary indulgence by the church, even if, fill in the blank, we are all walking a path that millions of people have walked for over a thousand years out of devotion to an idea that something holy is at the end. That's got to have energy. It does. I mean, we... We have no historical fact that St. James the Greater ever came to Iberia. But just through the, the walking and the belief, he exists here. Mm-hmm. He is here. Wow, we could stop there, couldn't we? Yeah, there's so much that just touches me about this pilgrimage. I think that's why it keeps calling me back. And, and the interesting thing that I, well, what I think is interesting is it's the Camino Frances that keeps calling me back. It's not any other route. I haven't, I I walked the Inglés last year and yes, it was beautiful, but it wasn't home the way that the Frances is home to me. And I bet you feel something similar about this route. I do, I do. I mean, I've walked other routes and I spent a lot of time on the Camino del Norte, not exclusively for the Camino del Norte. I was doing field work in Galicia. I was doing field work in Asturias. I was doing field work in Cantabria and Basque Country in southwestern France. And um, they all taught me things that were really important. And oftentimes those very things taught me what to see on the Camino Frances because the Camino Frances isn't, it's not just south of these regions. It's, it is pulling in influences from all these regions. Mm. And more than anywhere else, it's bringing in, I mean, it's the French road. It's the French way for a reason, because it was the recipient of so many people coming in through the roads from France and all these European pilgrims, but also people coming from southern Spain and Portugal and other parts of the Mediterranean and even from North Africa. This road, the Camino Frances, was pulling all of these people in, some as temporary pilgrims, some who just said, I'm going to set up workshop and, and live in this town and become a mason or a carpenter or a, you know, a foot cobbler, a cobbler, you know, a shoe cobbler, because people really needed shoes. <laughs> a lot of repairs and all kinds of things. And so it's such an incredibly, it was an incredibly diverse road. And all these people have left their, their influences in it, in the buildings, in the legends, in the culture, in the languages. I love the way that you talk about it with such a, even if you don't say the words, I can hear a depth behind everything you talk about, about the Camino Frances and about Spain in general. Yeah. And so I love, I love when you shared with me about how you got to be the author of this guidebook, that you weren't the only one 
who had pitched it. Many people had pitched, I'd like to do the Camino de Santiago for Moon Publishing. And you got selected out of a highly competitive field to write it. And so this book exists because you are the one that got selected to write it with everything that you bring from your 30 years in Spain. And I would just like to invite my listeners to check it out, you know, uh, to buy it or go to the library if it's not within your budget right now. It's also available on Kindle, yeah? It is, or iBooks. iBooks, great. So anybody who wants it and doesn't want to carry the weight of it on the Camino, like you are, I'm just cracking up because every time I ask you a question, not every time, but sometimes you pull out your phone and you pull up your guidebook and confirm that my, you know, this is actually that. It's just great. I just love that. Thank you. I've I've actually heard people say they buy both and they Uh read the hard copy at home. But then they pull out the the waterproof folded map of the whole trail. That map's amazing. And take that with them and then get the Kindle or iBooks version and use the two together. Excellent. You know, what I did with the map is I actually have, I have both first and second edition, so I have two maps. I leave one map at home with a friend so that they can follow me. And then what I do is I break out my map and I put my pen pointing to where I am and I take a photo and send them the photo so they can look at the map and find out where I exactly where I am. And I just love that. I love that too. Yeah. And then the other reason why I love the hard copy, and I do this with all of my Camino guidebooks, I don't carry them on the Camino anymore, but I look at them nonstop when I'm back home. After trip, between trips, I'm just always pouring over it to see, what does Bibi say about this? What does Briarly say about this? Yeah. Me too. Yeah. I actually have a collection of guidebooks. I've collected all of the ones that I could find that were from the beginning. You know, I mean, I oh, have wow. I have two translations of the 12th century <laughs> Pilgrim's Guidebook, the Codex Calixtinus, Book 5. But I also, I have all the, the guidebooks and travelogues that are kind of like guidebooks from people who walked it over the centuries, you know, especially from the last five centuries. We have a, a, a few, a good handful we have uh, Georgiana Goddard King. She was an art historian who did the whole Camino in a wonderful, wacky way, on foot, by horse, on mule, on carriage, whatever, <laughs> in like 1915. Walter Starkey, who did it in the 1950s, T.A. Layton in the 1960s, all these. But then the first modern guidebooks that started coming out, like from the, the parish priest of Osebrero, he wrote a gorgeous one. Um, Valinia. Elias Valinia. Yes. Yeah. I talk you. about him in my audio guide. It was magnificent. Yeah. His guidebook is fantastic, you know, and I got that. And um, there are some French ones. And this passion for the Camino just is, it's, I love these guidebooks. Yeah. They're really good friends. And of course, you know, the Briarly, you know, bless yeah. him. Yes. You know, rest in peace. He really gave us a beautiful book. And, um, the Kikaron books. I mean, they're all great. Mm-hmm. They're all great. Mm-hmm. And they're all different. And I love that you had said you don't do things the way the other people do it because they do it so well. Why would you duplicate what they're doing? Right. You're doing what yeah. you're doing really well and let yeah. everybody have their place. Yeah. I mean, my yeah. guidebook does the practical also really well, uh-huh. but it also, instead of listing all the albergues in all the places, well, I don't think they list places to eat, so I yes. do give places to eat, but then I just, I kind of, it's it's hard, but I, I try to pick just, you know, some of the top 
picks of oh, it's different the kinds of accommodations. Yeah, well, and every I, year it's going to change. You well, know? And I was with you when we were in Trabadello. Trabadello is really a problem because there's so much good there's stuff so there. There's so many nice places, yeah. but it's such a small place. It's so small you can't spend three nights there. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, you could, yeah. you know, but, And yeah. maybe you should. It's and a great place to spend some time. Yeah, yeah. The first place, you get a private room or a dorm bed at that place. The next place is Ellie's, El Puente Peregrino. Yeah. You get a private room and fabulous vegetarian food yeah. and then the next night you go to Casa Susie who has an incredible reputation for her hospitality and her food by the way with fresh produce from her garden absolutely and the warmest and coziest dorm room I've ever been in highly recommended absolutely yeah so that's that Trabadello alone is a bit of a problem for a guidebook writer it is it is <laughs> and it has such a magical entrance because you walk for about half a kilometer through this gorgeous chestnut wood and that wood, that forest is really precious to the people of Trabadello. Mm. They're harvesting those nuts. And we as pilgrims, wherever we stay, will get to eat from that harvest. Yes. How about that cake that Susie gave us? <gasps> what was it? Chocolate chestnut, home-baked chocolate chestnut cake with roasted chestnut flour. That she roasted best. herself. She collected the nuts, roasted them. <laughs> And she's like, oh, yeah, you just, it's like an almond chocolate cake, but you substitute with the chestnuts. I'm like, yes, that's special that you think like that. (laughs) So casual. So casual. Are you kidding me? That would have taken me six years to figure out. Yeah. Well, you know, it's fun. And and part of what's fun about having you here at the Stone Boat the same time I am is our love for the Camino, I think, is probably on equal footing, but it comes from different angles. And I think if, if you and I were to take a trip along the entire Camino, and we could just riff on every town and village, every town and yeah. village about what we love, and did you see this, and do you remember, I remember that guy, and, you know, that would be fun, we should do a car trip. I think so. <laughs> and I think, and then at root, what we really hold in common, though, you know, is it is what the Camino did to us when we first came here and walked it, that powerful transformative journey, it was yeah. just with all this richness, I think that's what we have that very Definitely. heavily in alignment in common. Definitely. It keeps bringing us back. Yeah. And I think for me, if I were to sum it up, it keeps my feet literally and metaphorically on the ground. And being on the ground and being in connection with our earth is so important. I agree. And healing. Let's get outside. Let's get out of the steel, concrete, man-made buildings. And let's walk this earth. I think that might be the best explanation for why it doesn't even occur to me to count how many times I've been here. And I I would say it might be the same for you is because it's not about that. It's about just being here. It's being here. Yeah. I stopped counting in 2012 when I had a conversation. You probably know Orieta of Acacio and Orieta at Deloria de Rioja at their albergue. Oh my gosh, what a, what a place. Another great place. Another great place. And I, she was talking about her walks on the Camino, and I innocently asked her, well, how many times have you done it? And she looked at me like, that can't be a real question. Stop it, you know? But what she shared with me is it's, it's not about keeping score or accomplishment. It's not about that at all. It's not about bragging rights. It's not about anything except what transformation has occurred from being here and so I stopped counting that moment 
because I was actually, I had a, a spreadsheet, not a spreadsheet. It was a big stage. It was a big map with stages. And I was actually doing different colors each time I would walk a a route in a section and be like, yay, look what I watch. And I went, crumple that up. I no longer don't care anymore. Just in an instant, stopped caring. Yeah. Yeah. About that. Yeah. It's good stuff. So what would you say to a first time pilgrim who we're going to, we're going to do this in two different locations and see if your answer changes. So let's say you're on a zoom call and people are getting ready to walk the Camino and they're in their planning stages. They're, you know, they're not there yet. They're just planning. What would you, what advice would you give them? What would you, maybe not advice because you're not so much an advice giver as a way shower, but what, what would you share with them to have them go off on a potentially life-changing journey? I would want them to make sure they have really well-fitting shoes. <laughs> super, super practical because that can determine everything. Yes. <laughs> and then really encourage them to follow their own sense of the way they need to do the Camino. And it's really easy to get pulled up into the energy, especially, you know, for it's such a common experience in Saint Jean Pierre de Port when a lot of the staging ground, you know, for for many, many first time pilgrims and you get caught up into everyone else's ideas about how to do this and what it's all about. And um sometimes it can be heady and exciting and sometimes it can be overwhelming and like you just you're you're pulled in the wave, but what you really want to do is slow it down and do your own walk. And I would say, slow it down then and do your own walk. Um, but really listen to your inner instinct about how you want to do it. Nice. Is that the same thing that you would say to someone when they're standing in St. Jean-Pierre-du-Port the morning they're about to start walking? Or would you have another piece of wisdom to share with them? I probably would because the energy out of the alberga is going to, you know, can pull them into that wave. Yeah, it's like a giant whoosh. There goes the river rushing yeah. by. Yeah. yeah, and I would really, you know, well, I mean, I wrote a guidebook so that people don't miss things that are easy, you know, because you're tired and you're trying to clock in, log in a lot of kilometers mm-hmm. to get to your next bed. Um, so I would really, it's like to, to just do your best to really look around and be present. Talk to the locals, even if you barely speak any Spanish, because they are the wisdom keepers of this trail. and They can maybe guide you into something that is so much better than what you might have been thinking about. And that's a great point. You know, so many people who talk about the Camino after having walked it talk about the pilgrim community and how the Camino is about connecting with pilgrims from all around the world. And I think sometimes we miss that the local people are hosting us and they're doing a fabulous job of it. They are. And there are some incredible stories right there. The the family that runs the Orison Refuge. Yeah, Refuge Orison. Right, you yeah. know, Jean-Jacques if you want to sleep on the mountain and cut your crossing over the Pyrenees yeah. into two, he comes from a family of, of traditional sheep herders and his brother is still a shepherd. And they still move the sheep over the mountain from one pasture to the other. And that that refuge is actually an old shepherd's keep that was then you know, fixed up and outfitted for. So it's just um, there's your 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 sleeping in tradition. I mean, and thousands of years old tradition. This is like transhumance, the movement of 
of sheep over those mountains <laughs> has been going on for since the Neolithic, at least. You know, I'm talking like 7,000 years ago. <laughs> I love that because Neolithic, I go, that's old, right? <laughs> and Phoebe can place it on the timeline. That's perfect. Those are our first farmers. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Yeah, and you know what you just what you just described matches one of my top tips that I have been saying since the beginning of this podcast series. Don't rush the start. And if you don't rush the start, you then learn how not to rush at all. You practice it from right out of the gate and just take your time, pay attention to what's around you because it is and is not all about the walking. Right. Yeah. I I absolutely agree. And there's so many levels that that will play out if you don't rush the start. I mean, I think most of just the physical injuries that that pilgrims get, they get in the first two days Mm -hmm. and they don't manifest until five or six days later, you know, and people are limping out of Pamplona and wondering what happened. And it was, they went too fast over the mountain Mm -hmm. and then they didn't stretch. Yeah. Or they carried their fully loaded backpack without having trained for it. And that changes the body positioning completely. And your shoes, your feet then rub differently than they would have without the backpack. Yeah. And then you're a mess. So if you can slow it down just first physically, then it then you will also slow it down for the the mental the emotional and if you you want to go there the spiritual sure aspects of it they they will fall into place but yeah maybe that's a piece of advice first take really good care of your body yeah and then everything else will fall into place very good and <laughs> i've started advising advising people this was two episodes ago to condition for the camino rather than train for the camino Because if you think about what you're going to be doing for, oh, I don't know, four to eight hours a day, how about just start doing that more than you're doing it now and start getting your body conditioned to the rigors of the Camino. And we had that lovely gal who stayed here last night with us. I won't mention her name for privacy reasons, but she talked about how she had no expectation or understanding of the physical rigors of walking the Camino. And so when people say, oh, you don't need to train, maybe not, but you need, you might want to condition because it's going to make it easier yes. and more enjoyable. Yeah. I know people sometimes compare the Camino with a, like the Appalachian Trail or the Pacific Crest and say, well, it's not as rigorous and thinking, but you are walking further, dis- farther distances and you're doing it oftentimes for many people longer. Yeah. And so it really does become... A, an endurance thing mm-hmm. and you really need to to make decisions every day so that you can sustain this for four to six weeks yeah and even if you don't compare it to another trail how about just compare it to your current daily life <laughs> how many people are on their feet for four to six to eight hours a day right now right. i work i worked in retail for decade and i was on my feet that much and they were not happy feet yeah and I needed my two days off every week. And you weren't wearing a pack. I know? wasn't wearing a pack. I was wearing heels some of the time. Okay, that's Blah. worse. Yeah, that's no, far that's, worse. That's rough. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah. But I think the point is, you're not doing it now, and and it's maybe a little unrealistic to expect to jump in and have it go perfectly if you don't condition for it. It's good advice. Is there anything else that you would like to share? I just absolute how much fun it's been speaking with you and and also just to tell people to to have a blast as much as you can when you're out there and enjoy the camino and and let each day be what it is yeah 
great. And I'm going to add to that and go do it. Yeah, just, yeah, go do it. Find a way and do it your way. Amen. Right. Thanks, Phoebe. I really appreciate our time together. Thank you, Nancy. Me too. All right. It's been great. Very fun. All right. Thank you. Thank you.